The scripture reading for this morning comes from Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 31. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is God's word. We've been looking at the book of Moses all through this Lenten season. And the book of Exodus teaches us that God is our Redeemer and our Savior. Easter is all about the redemption of the world. And there's probably no other text in all the Bible, if you really want to understand salvation, it's fitting for today, there's no other text 
in all the Bible that really helps us to understand what salvation is. So very quickly, we're going to go into three things that we learn about salvation. Through this escape, the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. Salvation means, one, you have a new center. Two, you have a new status. And lastly, you have a new savior. You have a new center because you have a new status, because we have a new savior. First, the gospel, salvation means we have a new center. Brief background. The Pharaoh, he's the king of Egypt, and there have been 10 plagues that God has sent to Egypt, the 10th being absolutely devastating to his country. And so he allows the Hebrews, he allows them, who were there, they were his slaves to go free. And so the Hebrews, they leave the Nile Valley many, many miles on their way back to their ancient homeland, which is Canaan. And they arrive at their first physical barrier, the Red Sea. Now, meanwhile, back in the Nile Valley, we have the Pharaoh, the king, who has a change of heart. And in chapter 14, earlier than the passage that we just read, verse 5, he says, what have we done? And so what does he do? He summons 600 chariots. Now, the chariots were the greatest military weapon of their day in the most powerful empire to date at that time. And so the Israelites, they find themselves trapped. On one side, They have this formidable army. They can hear the chariots racing towards them from the most powerful empire to date. And on the other side, they have a formidable physical barrier, the Red Sea. And so what's their response? Verses 11 to 12, fear. They're regretful. They're delusional about their past. The circumstances in their lives have captivated them. They become reactive. They're shrinking back. And in verse 12, they say to Moses, I'm going to summarize. They say, didn't we say to you, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. In other words, why are you here? Why did you lead us out of Egypt? We were fine. When it was so untrue, that's not how they reacted. In chapter 4, immediately after Moses experiences God at the burning bush, He goes in chapter 4 with his brother Aaron to meet and confront the Israelites. He brings them all together, and he shows them signs, and he teaches them, he talks to them, and it says they believed him, they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, it says that they bowed down and they worshipped. That's what happened. But now they're saying this, it would have been better for us to have stayed in Egypt. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die. What's missing here? Now, if you were sane, if you were sane, if you were a reasonable person, you would have said, listen, we just saw, we just witnessed God send 10 plagues to Egypt. We just saw the clear, a clear evidence of the power and the love of God taking down single-handedly the most powerful empire, the most powerful person in the world. If anything, you would have asked, We see the Red Sea. We hear the chariots coming. What's the Lord going to do next? That's what a reasonable person would ask. But here, God's not even in the equation. This is so much like the human heart. God's not even in the equation. They're not asking for God. They're not expecting God to show up. They're not hoping for God. They're not even acknowledging God. On one hand, they're completely free from Egypt. 
But on the other hand, they've rejected God. In many ways, they have no master now. They have no God in their lives. That's a lot like today's postmoderner. Our world today, we say, I'm my own person. I don't need anybody in my life to tell me how to live my life. I have my experience. I have my gifts. I have my skills. By definition, these Israelites are totally free, completely free. But look, they're still slaves. They're still in slavery. They're paralyzed by their fear. They've lost their senses. They're absolutely insane. They're crazy. They're slaves to what their senses tell them, to what they see, what they hear, what they feel, instead of what they actually know, what they've experienced. They're a slave to their circumstance. They're controlled. They're completely owned by their fears. And Moses, Moses is completely different. Moses says what? Verses 13 to 14, he says, Stand firm. Do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you today. In Moses, no slavery. And because there's no slavery, there's no fear. There's no paralysis in Moses' life. He's completely courageous, completely in control. He asks, he's found himself. He's got a hold of himself. He's sane. Now why? It's because Moses has seen the fire of God. Moses remembers. He knows. He's encountered God. He knows his life is not his own. He has heard the promise of God. He has heard the call of God. And so he's sane. Until you see God, until you encounter God, until you recognize his beauty, until you're captivated by his beauty, and that it's more important than anything else in your life, you will never be free. That's what this passage is telling us. Now, why not? First, it's because everybody lives for something. Everybody lives for something. Everybody lives for something as a center of their significance, a center of their worth, a center of their meaning in life. Ever since the Garden of Eden, there was a deep insecurity that was built into our souls the moment we had distanced ourselves and chose to rebel against God, Adam and Eve. Ever since then, there was a deep insecurity in the soul that says you're nobody, you are insignificant, something like that. And as a result, what happens is whatever you're tied to, whether it's good or bad, whatever you live for, that thing you are serving. That thing controls you because that thing which brings you significance and worth and meaning in your life, you have to have it. So whatever you're tied to, it controls you. That's why we get so angry when things don't go our way. That's why we get so anxious at the threat of something not going our way. That's why we fall into despair when we've lost it. And if you ever fail it, if you ever disappoint it, if you ever fail to get it, If you've lost it, it will damage you, it will destroy you, it will curse you. And it comes like, it looks like this, it looks like self-loathing, it looks like anger inside, there's bitterness and anxiety, there's punishment, you just feel the punishment and the pain and the hurt. What's happening? You're corroding, you're imploding on the inside, that's what's happening. The Bible says that anything but God in the center of your life leads to slavery, anything. And as a result, Christianity is about a new center. Easter is about the restoration of the soul, the only true center that really frees you and gives you courage and heals your anger and heals your pride. And until you see that, the Bible says, you are never free. Easter is about having a new center. Salvation is about having a new center. Now, secondly, it's about having a new status. New status. How can we be saved? How can we be set free? The answer is this. God saves his people here. You see it in this text. Through a decisive act. 
The first thing about this that we learn is that when Pharaoh sets out with his chariots, what he's basically doing is basically condemning the Israelites to death. He's raced them out. He's sent them out. As long as the Hebrews then are on this side, the Egyptian side of the Red Sea, they are under the sentence of death. They are under condemnation. But as soon as the Israelites crossed over that line, there is a line, they crossed it. As soon as they crossed over to the other side, you see this through verses 21 to 23, and really in through what happens at the end of 29, they came out from under the sentence of death. They are no longer under that sentence. They are no longer under condemnation. There's this invisible warrior that you see fighting on their behalf, fighting against the Egyptians. And it's refusing to let the Egyptians pass. Meanwhile, on the other side, the Israelites, weak, broken, fearful, scared, just completely delusional, and yet they're crossing. They're crossing. An amazing thing here. Jesus Christ says in John chapter 5, verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over, he says. He has crossed over from death to life. Easter is about crossing over from death to life. When the Israelites finally made it to the other side, imagine yourself broken, poor. Now you've crossed over, barely made it across to the other side, but now you know from seeing what's happening, the waters are now closing up over your enemies. Everything that is really epitomizes your fear, the center of your fear, the waves are just closing over it. And you know the chasm now, and you see where you've crossed. There is a visual reminder. You see the difference. There's new life. You're truly free now. New life. No more condemnation. You've crossed over literally from death to life. Easter is about new life. The restoration of your lives. God delights in you. God accepts you. He, and... and He receives you now because of this decisive change of status that he has worked in our lives. Easter is about the work of God. He's fighting for you so that you can have a change in status. Now, what does that mean? Primarily, primarily becoming a Christian does not mean that there's a change in character. Contrary to what any one of us believes, primarily becoming a Christian does not mean there's a change in character. Primarily. Now, of course, as a Christian, you want to grow. You want to become more like Christ. The Spirit of God actually enters into your soul and your heart and renews you into the image of Christ. And that is a lifelong process. That is a lifelong process. But what makes you a Christian is not a change in your character, but a change in status. I'm going to give you a biblical case study. The Apostle Paul, again, Time Magazine, ranked him one of the top five most influential characters in world history. In his epistle to the Romans, in chapter 8, verse 1, this is him nearing the end of his life. He concludes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's written in your word of encouragement. Now what that means, what he's saying is, you've crossed over. If you're a Christian, you've crossed over. There's no more condemnation in your life. Now let's place that into the context of Paul's life. Paul grew up a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. What that really means is that he has had a Lord and Savior uh, in his life, a master in his life, before he even became a Christian. And that Lord was moral righteousness. As a Pharisee, Paul explains this in the book of Philippians, chapter 3. In Philippians, chapter 3, Paul says, As a Pharisee, with regard to moral righteousness, I was faultless. Here's a man 
who had built his entire life, everything about him, on having a great record, a great reputation, basically. But he killed people. He killed people out of judgment. He destroyed their lives. He ruined families. He did horrible things, unmentionable things, not because of his unrighteousness, but in the name of righteousness. And when that truth, when that reality hit him, it tormented him. Romans chapter 70 says, it tormented me. It broke me. It made me crazy. It made me afraid. It made me insane. Just like the Israelites in this passage. It made them crazy. But now he says, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's the Apostle Paul. Paul understood having a sense of liability in his life, moral liability, self-loathing for what he has done. If you read Romans chapter 7, it's an amazing discourse on how much he hates himself in a sense. It threw him into hell, his guilt. His sin threw him into hell in a sense. He felt cursed. There was guilt mixed with pain, mixed with pity, mixed with just hate and self-loathing. There was was discontent in his life. And yet, when he encountered Christ, he says, he concludes, I didn't live a good life. I did not live a good life, but I'm no longer condemned. Thanks be to God, he says. That's his conclusion. I've got new status. Becoming a Christian means there's a decisive moment in which you've passed from death to life. Now, it does not mean you know what moment that was. Most of us, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, probably cannot remember what moment exactly you crossed over from death to life, but it is a real event. It actually, something has happened. I'm going to tell you a brief story. C. Everett Koop, Dr. C. Everett Koop, who was a former Surgeon General of the United States, he worked right under the president. He was actually, his roots are here in Philadelphia. He served at the University of Pennsylvania in the Children's Hospital. And he was actually, I believe, chief of medicine there at Children's Hospital. And as a surgeon general, before he uh, was, as he was entering into his studies here in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania, there was a woman that he fell in love with. He fell in love with a woman. And, you know, naturally what men do when they think they're in love is what they ask the woman out on a date. So he asked uh, this woman out on a date, and she said, no. She said, no. He said, why? She said, well, I know I'm a believer and you are not. I know you are not. And I will not allow myself to be married to an unbeliever. And so he said, well, what, am I gonna, what do I got to do? I mean, you know, so finally he started following her to church. And they attended 10th Presbyterian Church, which is list, uh, located right in Center City. And so he started attending 10th Presbyterian Church with this woman week after week. And he would sit here and James Montgomery Boyce would be preaching and he would preach and he would tell these, he was, as he's preaching, see every crew, a very intelligent man would hear these sermons and say, this is a bunch of crap. What is this? Who believes this crap? That's what he says. Three years later, he was in love, okay? Three years later, he's sitting with this woman and he's listening to James Montgomery Boyce preaching. And he hears a man a few seats down from him muttering under his breath, who believe this crap? And he found himself getting upset. And he was like, I do. <laughs> now, the thing is, he, didn't, he can't remember when he crossed over. But he crossed over, you see. There's a decisive, distinct act And so becoming a Christian means there's a decisive moment in which you pass from death to life. Now, the narrative, when you read this narrative, you see it happening. The waters open up, the Israelites cross, 
Other people tried the cross, and the waters closed. You see that? There's a decisive moment and action, an event that took place. The Israelites literally crossed over because God, God in his powerful rescue because of his grace. Now, the primary difference then between Christianity and other world religions is this. Take something like Buddhism or Islam. Take uh, uh, Taoism or, or even Judaism. They all begin with a journey. There's a journey. And it goes like this. That journey depends on you, on your work. You have the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, the Five Pillars of Islam. You have Taoism. Taoism, the word Tao, means the way. These things all, you have the law. These things all depend on you. In order for you to experience a change of status, you first have to change your life and your behavior. In other words, you have to obey in order to be accepted. But Christianity is not a religion because it is the exact opposite of religion. The gospel teaches you can't change your life. You can't change your behavior because of sin. Sin is much more nuances. There's no greater discourse on our brokenness internally, our spiritual cosmic brokenness in the Bible in a sense, that it says sin is much more complex than you think, much more nuanced than you think. You can't just beat it out through a series of morals and moral living. The Bible says a sinner is dead. You have to cross over. Very, very complex. You're trapped between a raging army that's bent to destroy you and a raging sea that will not accept you. You are completely trapped, utterly trapped. You cannot cross. Martin Luther, in a discourse with other theologians, once said that that salvation is more like a caterpillar being trapped in a ring of fire. The only hope is rescue from above. That's the only way out. You're helpless, you're lost, you're cooked unless salvation comes from above. Now, the Egyptians, they were covered with these waters of judgment. In the Bible, seawater and floodwaters, they are a representation, they're a symbol of sorts of judgment, the divine wrath of God. So these floodwaters, much like Noah's flood, you have the floodwaters, it's the justice of God. And so you have these Israelites that cross through. And then the Egyptians, what do they do? They go right after them. And even after a while, they start to realize, wait a second, this has nothing to do with them. This has everything to do with the Lord that is in their lives, and we, we got to go, and they start to turn around. That's what happens, right? What happens? They're covered in water. That's really verses 26 through 29. They're just covered in water. Now, the Israelites, they cross over. So here you have one group, they're drowning in judgment. And the other group makes it across without even getting wet. But look at these people. Were they better than the Egyptians? Were they better believers than the Egyptians? No, they were fearful. They were doubtful. They were ungrateful. They were complaining to Moses. They weren't even even acknowledging God in their trouble. They were self-absorbed. They were selfish. They were self-centered. They were foolish. They were insane. They were delusional, saying stupid things. Why would God save a people like this? How would God save a people like this? It's because of his redeeming love. We have a new status because we have a Savior. That question, how, how did God save them, is very important because it implies that it's possible for anyone to be rescued. It's possible for anyone to cross over. Verses 13 to 14 shows, here's Moses. Everybody's afraid. They're they're, they're talking crazy. Moses is standing firm. He says, I want you to stand firm. He's acting beautifully. He's acting wonderfully. He's speaking faithfully. 
But then, verses 15 to 18, it begins with this. Here's God. Moses comes to God, and God says, why are you crying out to me? Moses is being rebuked. Moses is being punished, in a sense. Commentators say it's interesting because Moses, who didn't deserve to get yelled at, got yelled at. And, and Moses, in a sense, is acting as a represent, representative. He's, he's getting the rebuke. He's acting as their mediator. Now, if, if you think about it, Moses gets the rebuke that the people deserved, and the people get the rescue that only Moses deserved. That's, what ha- that's what's happening here. The sin of the people, they're complaining, their fear, they're shrinking back, their delusional state, all of that is being transferred, in a sense, over to Moses. And when Moses approaches God as the mediator, God says, why are you coming to me? Why are you crying out to me? Now, you think that's a stretch. You think that, oh, it's a stretch that Donnie is saying that. Well, think about this. Later on in the book, and this happens all the way through the entire saga and journey of Moses, Moses consistently acts as a representative, consistently acts as a, as a mediator. There's one part in the book of Exodus that we'll see later on where uh, he, he actually prays. He says, God, they've committed a great sin, but perhaps I can make atonement for the sin. And he does, and he starts to plead with them. And he says, forgive them their sins, but if not, blot me out. Cast me out instead. Here, Moses pleads. And the people are able to cross over because they had a mediator. And we have an even greater mediator than Moses. We have a new savior. The people, they were able to cross over the sea. Now, we said that the sea represents the judgment of God, the storm of God, the rage of God. Remember Jonah? If you know anything about the story of Jonah, another prophet in the Old Testament, Jonah here, here he is running from God. And what he does to run away from God, to get as far away from God as he can, he boards the ship who sets out at sea. And here he is out at sea, and what comes? A storm. So he's riding on the waters of judgment and the waters of judgment rise up and these waves are crashing against the boat and Jonah realizes he knows it's because of him. So what does he say? He says, throw me in. Throw me in. It's because of me. And they do. Reluctantly, they throw him into the water and the sea calms down. Jesus, centuries later, Jesus Christ says, one greater than Jonah has arrived. One greater than Jonah is here. Now, why does he say that? What he's really saying here is this, what Jonah experienced, what Pharaoh and his men experienced, the depths, the coldness, the judgment, as horrible as that is, that is the weight and the pressure of judgment crushing you. He says, I have come to experience the ultimate reality to which all of this points, the ultimate waves of judgment, the ultimate flood of my wrath. The ultimate storm, the ultimate Red Sea, I have come to experience that so that you can experience the ultimate crossing over. When Jesus was on the cross, there was a storm. The skies grew dark. The Bible literally says the skies grew dark. There was a storm. The earth trembled and shook. And there he cried out. Why? Because the divine judgment of God, the divine justice of God was coming. And he cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he says. What is he saying? He's saying, now at this moment, I am experiencing the ultimate judgment, the full weight of God's wrath. Moses only got a rebuke. The people at best got a rebuke, but Jesus Christ on the cross says, I am now experiencing the full wrath of God, crushing me like waves, and I'm drowning. I'm drowning under the wrath of God. 
Moses only got a rebuke. Jesus says, I'm getting it in full. I'm receiving the full, unyielding wrath of God. Jesus got the wave. Jesus got the storm, but he got the real storm of God's judgment. He got the fire. He got the judgment. He got the wrath. He is experiencing hell. He's experiencing the curse of God. He's been separated from God. That's what hell is. Separation from God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've rejected me. You've cast me out. Jesus, who is perfect and holy, the most perfect person that ever walked the earth, always centered his life on his Father, always worshiping, and yet, instead of crossing over from death to life, he crossed over from life to death for you, for me. And he went to the grave, and you know when he went to the grave, he did it worshipfully. God rejected Jesus Christ because of our sins. He's the ultimate mediator, the ultimate savior. And yet, do you know that even as the waves of God's wrath was punishing Christ, he was still trusting him. He was still praying to him. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was still trusting God. He was still praying to God. He never feared. He stood firm. He never regretted. In fact, the Bible says he was glad and he was worshiping while he was on the cross. And even death couldn't hold him down. Even death couldn't hold him down. That's the resurrection. That's the power of God. If you put your faith in me, Jesus says, I will lead you from death to life. The same power that brought Jesus back from the dead now resides in you. That's courage. That's salvation. That's power. You're going to cross over because Jesus had taken what we deserve. Now, that means you have no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your status has changed. Friends, today, do you have courage? Because that, you can have that courage and it doesn't depend, because it doesn't depend on you. There's no work that you can do. That gives you courage and you can have humility. A Christian has courage and humility. Because you have humility because it didn't depend on you. But you can have courage because it doesn't depend on you. Do you get that? And that means today you can have a new center. You can have courage. You can have power. You can have poise in life's storms. You can have peace. Why? Because these storms are lesser storms. These quakes in our lives are lesser quakes. The waves that we experience are lesser waves because the only wave that can actually drown you for good, Jesus had already drowned underneath those waves for our sakes. Do you believe that? I pray that you believe that and trust that because if you do, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, you can have a new center, you can have new status, and you have power in your life. Let's pray.